Hello, my friends, and welcome again to the Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points us to Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood. Thank you for joining me today. We are in the middle of an examination of the Gospel of Luke, and so we're going to just jump right into our third theme of the Gospel of Luke, and that is Luke declared Jesus' mission of bringing God's salvation. Salvation is one of those theological terms where if you ask a thousand people, you'll get about a thousand different definitions, and to some extent, that's a good thing. God's salvation is so all-encompassing, so wonderful, so glorious, that there is no one definition that can sum up what salvation is. But for the purpose of the Gospel of Luke, let's define salvation like this. Salvation is God's deliverance of humans from the power and effects of sin. So the power of sin in our daily life leading us away from God, our sinful flesh leading us into disobedience, the effects of sin being ultimately condemnation and eternal hell, but also alienation from God and from other human beings right here and now. And this is what Jesus said that he came to do. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And that's not something that Jesus brings out at the very end of the gospel. From the very beginning of Luke's gospel, this theme of salvation. Four different times in chapter 1 alone, we see the idea of salvation. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He has raised up for us a horn of salvation, that we should be saved from our enemies to give knowledge of salvation. Salvation came through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, so that people could enjoy the fullness of life that God had intended from the very beginning. Though Luke used different words to describe salvation, he was clear that Jesus is the only way to be saved. Closely connected with the idea of salvation is the idea of the kingdom of God. In one sense, salvation is a transfer of citizenship. You go from being a citizen of the kingdom of darkness to being transferred into the kingdom of God. So therefore, we shouldn't be surprised since Jesus said he came to seek and to save and salvation is just another way of saying you've been transferred into the kingdom of God. We shouldn't be surprised to see the kingdom of God all throughout Jesus' ministry. Jesus preached the kingdom of God. In Luke 4.43, when his disciples come and tell him to go and do more miracles, he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. So he was sent to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus commanded that his followers preach the kingdom of God. Luke 9, 1 and 2, he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. That's what they were to do. That's what we are to do. So what are we to preach when we preach the kingdom of God? We don't just go out in the middle of the sea and say, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. This is sort of a heading, a, a subject that we are to preach and teach about. The kingdom of God refers to God's sovereign rule. That's his rule in people's lives and his present rule through Christ. So we are ruled over right now by the Lord Jesus, the risen King Jesus. But we know that there is more of that rule yet to come. So he is presently ruling through Christ. But one day Christ's rule will be acknowledged by all creatures, all people, Even the demons will acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is what we long for, and this is what we pray for. When you look around the world right now, you don't see a lot of evidence that Jesus is currently reigning, and it can often be difficult to believe that he ever will. 
So how do we answer that question when people come to us and say, how can you be so certain that Jesus is reigning? We answer it by teaching something called inaugurated eschatology. Inaugurated eschatology is a fairly simple concept, despite the fairly confusing name. And here's what inaugurated eschatology means. Eschatology meaning uh, the, the study of the last days, and inaugurated meaning something that has begun, a term of office that has begun. So the inaugurated part of the eschatology is that Jesus is the Davidic Messiah whose kingdom began during his lifetime. Jesus's birth and his ministry on earth was his waging a victorious campaign against the forces of darkness, and he won the ultimate victory at the cross and at his resurrection. So he is the Davidic ruler. His reign began and is continuing and will continue for all time. But the eschatology part of an inaugurated eschatology is that Jesus' kingdom would not reach full expression until the future. So do we already have the blessings of the kingdom? Yes. Do we have the fullness of the blessings of the kingdom? No. For that, we wait for the return of Jesus. To demonstrate this idea of an inaugurated eschatology, Jesus tells us parables, most of which in the Gospels, and Luke is no exception, are about the kingdom of God. So I'm going to read a couple of these to you and make a few comments. The first is the parable of the ten minas. This is in Luke 19, 11 through 27. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Remember, they thought Jesus was a political military Messiah, that he was going to go into Jerusalem and kick the Romans out and that they would be back on top of the world in just a week's time. And so Jesus tells a parable to correct that misconception. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We don't want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered those servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came to him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You know that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Notice that the nobleman had current authority. He's already a nobleman. He's not some no-name commoner trying to take the throne. He already has current authority. Notice that the nobleman goes away to receive the kingdom. And notice that the nobleman returned ready to act with full kingship. This is a picture of Jesus's reign. He has authority. He has gone away to receive the kingdom. And he's going to return and he's going to act in his fullness as the king. And when the Lord Jesus returns, there will be no more patience, no more mercy extended to his enemies. There will only be judgment and wrath. Now, we think kings should conquer and kill their enemies, 
But Jesus shows us that God's kingdom is going to triumph in a very unexpected way. And that's through Jesus' death and exaltation. So Luke emphasizes how Jesus' death fits into God's plan and therefore fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies regarding the suffering servant Messiah. As Jesus was walking with his disciples, he would predict his own death over and over again. For example, in Luke 18, 31 through 33, it says, And taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. Now, as we know, the disciples did not understand this, and take it easy on the disciples. For the disciples, the idea of a crucified Messiah makes about as much sense as a four-sided triangle. If you don't remember your geometry, that's fine. There are no four-sided triangles. And to a Jewish person, there are no crucified, defeated messiahs. That doesn't make any sense. But this is what Jesus has come to do, to conquer his enemies by dying for them and making them his friends. After his resurrection, Jesus taught his disciples that the Old Testament had predicted all of this for those who had eyes to see. Luke 24, 25, and 27, it says, And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus died for us in accordance with God's plan for salvation from sin. This was not a rogue mission apart from the will of God. This was the will of God. Now, Luke more often linked salvation with the resurrection and ascension than with the cross. For Luke... The resurrection and the ascension were the Father's amen to Jesus's, it is finished. Because as Luke would understand it, and he's entirely right, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, if there is no resurrection and ascension, the cross was a failure. So Luke isn't saying to us, the cross doesn't matter. He's simply demonstrating the effectiveness of the cross by focusing on the resurrection and the ascension. Luke is the only writer to mention the ascension, and he does it twice. He ends his gospel with the ascension of Jesus, And he begins the book of Acts, part two of his great two-volume work, with the ascension of Jesus. Luke 24, 50-53 says, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. So from heaven, the exalted Jesus continues to act today in the life of the church. Acts 2, 32-33 says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Peter is telling the crowds that everything they're seeing and hearing, the speaking in tongues, and what they will soon be seeing and hearing, which is the, the miracles of healing and resurrection that the disciples are going to do, are all because of the work of Jesus in heaven on their behalf. So from heaven, the exalted Jesus continues to act today in the life of the church. And from heaven, the exalted Jesus will return one day to judge the world. Acts 1, 9 through 11, after Jesus ascends into heaven, it says, They were looking on. He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So God's kingdom is right now existing. If you're a Christian, you are in God's kingdom, no matter what country you live in. 
But God's kingdom is not yet here in its fullness. For that, we await the return of Jesus. So God's kingdom is where we are to some extent. Before we were a Christian, we were outside of the kingdom. So how did we get in? Right? It's not because we were smart. We didn't solve a puzzle. We didn't win the lottery. How did we get into the kingdom? And we got into the kingdom through repentance and conversion. According to Luke and according to all of Scripture, salvation comes by repentance, by turning away from sin. That's what it means to repent, to turn away from something. So more than any other gospel writer, Luke emphasizes Jesus' teaching on repentance. Just a small sample here. Luke 5.32, Jesus says he's not come to call the righteous, of which there are none, but he means, I didn't come to call people who think they're righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. And then Luke 13.1-9, it says there were some present at that time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So there's a group of Galileans, remember that's where Jesus grew up, and they had been killed at the synagogue. So Pilate had sent soldiers in to kill them while they were offering sacrifices. That's what it means with this, that his blood, their blood had been mingled with the sacrifices. And then verse 2, And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The implication seems to be the crowd was wondering, since these people got killed at church, does that mean they were like really bad? Like if God kills you at church, how bad of a person must you be? And then verse four says, Jesus goes on to continue to explain, or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? So apparently some tower had fallen and had killed 18 people. And Jesus says to correct a misconception, those weren't the 18 worst people in Siloam. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vendresser, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Now, what's the connection here between this teaching of Jesus and this parable of Jesus? Repentance. What is the fruit the owner wants to see? He wants to see repentance. This is what God is after. This is what he's looking for. And then one more, Luke 15, 10, Jesus says, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So for Luke and for all of Scripture, Jesus is not just another good person teaching good people how to be good. You don't need someone like that. You got YouTube, you've got the internet, you've got books. You don't need Jesus if all he's here to do is to teach you how to be a good person. No, Jesus's mission is of eternal importance to everyone because he is the only Savior. He is the only Savior, and he is only the Savior for those who repent of sin and put their trust in him. So the next time we come together, Lord willing, my friends, we're going to look at Jesus's mission to bring salvation, not just for a few, but for all people. But for now, take it and read. God bless.